Let me tell you a story, podcast number 98. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, never mind it is a how truth long it was. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat. Step onto your favorite fitness machine or lace up your walking shoes and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. For our first story, Steve and I are going to treat you to a duet. No, we won't sing, which could cause our listeners to tune out and never tune in again. Instead, We'll take turns reading sections, depending on the scene, of Michelle Netton's long, short story titled Different Mirrors. Due to the length, I have a feeling two or three podcasts will be required to read the entire story, which you're sure to enjoy. Different Mirrors by Michelle Netton Marla Rollins was only half concentrating on her task as she washed and dried each plate and placed them one after the other in a stack on the counter. Mostly, she was looking out the large kitchen window and watching the last stragglers wander outside the restaurant into the Cancun summer evening. Evening she'd come to love, so very nearly touchable the way the warm, moist air floated around bare skin. Wiping her hands after the last dish, she hung the damp towel on the hook above the sink. If Richard could see me now, she thought, he'd never believe it's me. No one would. Mario came through the swinging doors, his arms piled with empty trays that earlier had been loaded with thousands, it seemed, of dirty plates, glasses, forks, knives, and spoons, all of which Marla washed, rinsed, dried, and stacked for the next day's use. Her work was a continuous cycle of cleansing, like the tide, washing sand in and carrying it out from the beach. Muchos de los platos este noche, eh, senorita? Mario grinned, setting the trays on a shelf in the back. "'Si, Mario. Gracias,' Marla said, using two of the few Spanish words she knew. "'You helped me very much tonight.' Whenever he'd had a moment to spare, he'd dried some plates to make more room for the incoming dishes. Mario nodded. "'De nada, senorita. No problema.' "'Have a good evening,' he said in halting English." She could feel strands of her light brown hair on her forehead, escapees from under her bandana, and now loosely draping her forehead. Three months ago, the disarray would have meant she had to head straight to the powder room to fix it, but now she paid no mind. She wasn't on display anymore. Marla went into the bathroom and set her cloth handbag on the counter. She dug out her lavender lotion and massaged it into her hands, breathing in the pleasant smell while trying to rub back some of the moisture lost in the dishwasher. Eyeing herself in the mirror, she thought again. It's true. They wouldn't recognize me. She'd changed a lot in the months she'd been in Cancun. She had a whole new face. For the first time in years, she had a tan that highlighted the dark blue of her eyes. Her light brown hair had blonde highlights from the sun, not from a bottle. Before, she'd let herself be talked into trying all kinds of lotions, creams, and remedies that promised to intercept the appearance of any wrinkle or blemish. She topped those wonder formulas off with a mask of makeup. Now, at 42, her skin looked better than it had in years, like real skin, and it felt better, too. 
She wound her way from the kitchen through the tables to Louis's bar. Lately, Louis had taken to setting a cup of steaming coffee there for her after her shift ended. He owned the restaurant and did the bartending himself. Marla guessed he was in his late forties or so and thought he was a kind man with a good sense of business and humor, a rare combination. He tired her without asking a lot of questions. He didn't care about a resume or where she was from. He needed a dishwasher, and she needed a job. He said it was a simple problema, simple solucion, which was a phrase Marla learned he used quite often. Louis's bartending partner was a parrot named Venito, who could be found at the bar whenever Louis was, following him around and quoting him with phrases like, Thirsty? Sin po problema, sin po solucion, or the Spanish welcome of bienvenidos, amigos. Luis said his parent was a bienvenido, and good for business because with Venito around, his bar always had good company. Marla paused to stroke Venito's soft blue and green feathers as he eyed her warily in return. She thanked Louis for the coffee and carried it to a table near the open patio. Despite the warm night, the hot liquid felt soothing and tasted good. Everything she touched in Cancun seemed so much more vital and alive than anything she remembered feeling in a long time. She pulled off the bandana and smoothed her hair with her fingers, blending in the loosened strands. Her green cotton sundress with hand-embroidered roses on the front felt cool and soft against her skin. The breeze caressed her bare shoulders and face, and she closed her eyes to absorb it. She still found it hard to believe she was here. Three months ago, when she'd come into the restaurant and gotten the idea of taking the advertised dishwasher job for herself, she'd laughed out loud. But then, just as quickly, she stopped laughing, realizing that such a reaction was something she'd have done before. But not now. Why shouldn't she wash dishes? She'd wanted a complete change, and this was certainly that. All she needed was enough money to live on, and in Cancun, the way she was living now, that wasn't a lot of money. A few short months before, she'd been married to Richard Rollins, better known as governor of Washington State. He'd won the election three years ago and had been thriving in his appointment, but he had worked too many long hours, pushed too hard, and ignored the doctor's warnings. In the end, it had been the doctor who was right and Richard who had paid the ultimate price for being wrong. But even after their ten years together, she couldn't really say she missed him at least not in the sense of the loss of a husband. What she felt was more like the loss of an acquaintance. Any sadness she felt was for him rather than herself. He'd been a man who'd forgotten about the meaning of his own life in favor of being a good politician. He might have been a good husband if he'd been able to think of his marriage outside of the political vantage point, but she knew he saw nothing outside that vantage point. And while she didn't resent him, she'd grown to resent her role in all of it. The life that at first seemed novel and exciting soon became monotonous and controlled. She'd become a necessary but irrelevant appendage to Richard the governor, and worse yet, had hardly noticed the transition. Her mandate was to be flawless, pretty, supportive, and most of all, never a distraction. Her days were dictated and spelled out, as were her contacts, jobs, activities, and appearances. No friends to speak of. She felt like a plane following a predetermined flight path, allowing herself to be navigated along the patterns for so long she wasn't even aware of them. Mas de la café, señorita? Louis's voice broke through her thoughts. She nodded as he refilled her cup. El hombre, señorita, that man, 
he was here again tonight. Marla felt her stomach muscles tighten. She nodded her head and took a breath. There's nothing wrong, I hope, Louis asked, concern in his eyes. I will tell him not to come back. If only it were that simple. But she knew such words would fall on deaf ears. No, that's all right, Louis. I think I know who he is, or at least why he's here. And I have to deal with it sooner or later. Don't worry. I don't think it'll be too difficult to handle. He smiled reassuringly and made his way back to the bar. She wished she could believe her own words. Robert, Richard's accountant and advisor, had surely sent someone to find her all the way down here. I'm going away for a while, Robert, she told him on the phone the evening after the funeral. I trust you'll handle all financial and press matters while I'm away. The tapping of the adding machine in the background had abruptly stopped. Away? Now? Where? Marley, you just buried your husband today. As if she needed reminding, the sound of his voice was enough to drain the energy from her body. Yes, Robert, I remember. She pressed her forehead with her fingertips. But I need a rest, a change. Surely you can understand. She knew he wouldn't, even as the words had come out. She envisioned his spectacled eyes set far apart in his narrow face, widening with surprise as he shook his head. His voice tight, he replied, as she expected. No, I can't say that I do. You can rest here, surrounded by your constituents, he insisted. Besides, there is much to do. The election still needs your support. You'll have plenty of time to get away after that. But now it's completely inappropriate. There is much to do. And on he droned until she cut him off, done with his placating attempt at persuading her. Robert had been Richard's right hand, but Marla had never liked him. She thought him overbearing and obnoxious and had difficulty discerning where Richard's political agenda ended and Robert's began. Losing Richard from the equation hadn't seemed to curtail Robert's agenda. He had simply transferred his efforts to the next most promising candidate, and he seemed to feel she should do the same. Maybe she should have stayed in Seattle, despite the fact she had no real friends or family there. But she couldn't stand the hounding of this man or any of Richard's circle of leftovers any longer. Or politics altogether. She wanted to be rid of it all. But she hadn't had a lot of money at her disposal because her assets with Richard were tied up in the processing of the will or with the campaign. It would take time to sort out best ways to untie those strings. Robert had coyly offered to manage those strings for her, but she knew better than that. She just had wanted to run away, even though no one knew her feelings of desperation. The strength to leave came the morning of the funeral, in the early hours before the rest of the city had awakened. She'd been sitting in the window seat of her bedroom, gazing down at the street as the sun was coming up over the horizon. She found her eyes kept returning to the streetlight in front of the house. As the morning sun's brightness steadily increased, the streetlight had grown dimmer and dimmer until it faded completely away, its purpose negated by something much bigger. She'd felt a sense of panic as if she'd been watching herself disappear over the last few years, and she knew then she didn't want to be overpowered any more. Richard and his political aspirations had been the sun she orbited around, but he was gone and she would choose not to be eclipsed any more. She'd packed hurriedly, throwing only some things she'd need into a duffel bag, feeling that if she didn't get away fast enough, something or someone would stop her. Not until she was at the airport did she realize she'd forgotten her makeup and jewelry, but it was just as well. She was going to forget accessories completely and stop being one herself. 
She had no idea where to go. All of her trips in recent memory had been politically motivated and pre-planned. Walking toward the lineup of ticket counters, she remembered an article she'd read about Cancun while waiting for Richard in a country club lounge. How beautiful it had looked. A simple beauty. Without a better option, she booked a one-way flight to Mexico. To pay for the tickets, she'd used an ATM machine near her home to withdraw cash from her credit card, hoping not to leave an easy electronic trail for Robert to follow. Before boarding, she'd bended the card back and forth until she could break it apart and toss the pieces into two separate trash cans. She felt a little silly but also exhilarated to be doing something so different, so adventurous, and all on her own. Without access to credit cards, she had been left with $263 in cash and some change, a duffel bag of clothes, and her own ideas for handling what would come next. The cool breeze from the patio brought her back to Louis's bar in the present moment. Leaving her coffee and handbag at the table, she wandered through the open French doors. The breaking of the surf was louder here, and the sound was as refreshing as the moist, warm air around her. She loved being outside at night and the stillness that came with the later hour. The air felt quietly vibrant, yet peaceful and comforting. She crossed the broad patio and went down the steps under the soft green grass that grew wild but was mowed and trimmed. The animals were kept back here, and she could hear them stirring at her approach. Since coming to Cancun, she'd seen many small zoos like Louis at restaurants, stores, or roadside stops. They weren't really zoos and only had a small number of animals, but they drew tourists and children, and the nearby merchants liked that. The animals were not commonly seen in the States, and definitely not in Washington. She'd seen exotic birds, tiny monkeys, boar, ferrets, and what had looked to her like miniature reindeer. She didn't know the names of most of them. They interested her, but they depressed her as well. She felt that by looking at them, she was somehow contributing to their captivity. On the other hand, the monkeys were silly and funny and seemed to enjoy their own frolicking antics as much as their observers did. Even some of the other animals didn't seem to mind their situation too much. But the birds were different. They didn't respond to the intrusive onlookers. They merely stared straight ahead. She tried to get the birds to look at her, but they focused past her, looking blindly forward on the horizon. The bright blues, greens, and yellows of the feathers were striking and beautiful, immaculately preened and placed. And yet the captive creatures seemed stuffed and artificial in their stillness. Marla quietly approached the cages. Louis had three monkeys, one boar, and some birds in his collection. The monkeys came to the front and gripped the bars, looking out at her and cocking their heads. She spoke softly to them, not wanting to excite them. Then she wandered over to where the birds were caged. One cage had birds, mostly parrots, less tame than Venito. Usually birds were caged together, but Louis had one bird that was alone, a falcon with brown and tan feathers. The tips of its wings were gray. When she asked where its mate was, Louis had told her he had died not too long ago. We caught them in the wild a month or so ago, he explained, but the mate was injured. I'm hoping to find another mate for her soon. Maybe she can't adjust to being caged, Marla had offered. Venito wouldn't like being in one. Oh, no, that's no problemo, senora. Many falcons, they have been living in captivity for years. It does not bother them. And Venito, well, Louis laughed. He is one spoiled parrot. His tone was light, and Marla knew he was proud of his small zoo. He meant no harm to any of his animals. But when she looked over at the falcon at the blank staring eyes, Marla could not agree with Louis's words. 
In the fading daylight and twinkling lights from the restaurant, she could make out a red gleam in the bird's eyes, staring toward the fading sky. That the sky was no longer a daylight blue didn't matter. The falcon's gaze was locked toward the heavens, as if the memory of flying through blue sky was so vivid it could be remembered even in the shadows. She sat down in front of the cage, pulling her knees up to her chest. She sat there, looking around at the cages and listening to the rustling of fur and feathers. The same breeze encircled them all, drifting in and out between the bars that separated them. She didn't look at the falcon much, but she felt her presence and heard every rustle of her feathers. After a while, her stiff legs reminded her that it was time to go in, and she stood up and went through the patio back inside. She listened to the now-familiar clinking of glass as Louis arranged the colorful bottles of liquor at the bar. Her coffee had cooled, but soon Louis came over with a fresh hot cup, Venito on his shoulder. "'Go for a walk?' he asked. "'Mm-hmm,' she nodded, accepting the cup gratefully. "'Thank you.' Louis nodded and went back to the bar. She saw the look of concern had still been in his eyes, and that turned her attention to the man who had come looking for her. She sipped the warm liquid and leaned back in her chair, closing her eyes. Since her arrival in Cancun, she felt like she'd entered someone else's life. She was free to do whatever she wanted without questions or criticism from anyone, at least until that someone had appeared trying to find her. It had taken three months, but they'd done it. Her thoughts were interrupted as she felt a shadow cross her closed eyes. Startled, she looked up into the face of the man that met Louis's description from two nights ago. She stood, feeling her face tighten. She studied him as he stood across from her, only slightly taller than she, wearing a suit that looked like it could use a fresh pressing. His dark hair was short, and his light brown eyes weren't unfriendly. The tie around his neck was loosened and told her it had been a long day for him. Perhaps a long three months. She waited for him to speak first. Mrs. Rollins? His voice not an unpleasant breaking of the silence. He was smiling at her ever so slightly. I believe I've found you at last. If I could convince you otherwise, I would, she said, returning his gaze. But I can see that would be a useless effort. You'll have to excuse me if I don't offer my hand in welcome. She sat down again. Quite all right. I wasn't expecting one. Mind if I sit? Yes, in fact. But go ahead. She gestured to the chair across from her. She caught Louis looking at her, ready to assist if necessary. She pointed to her cup and glanced at the man. Another coffee, please, Louis, she called. And then, turning back to the man. So, let me guess. Robert hired you to find me, and has made it worth your while. It was Robert who hired me, yes. Whether it's worth it, well, that remains to be seen. Yes, for both of us. It probably wasn't too difficult to trace me. Actually, I might have expected you sooner. I shouldn't have used my real name when buying my ticket, but I didn't know how to use a false identity. Marla took a sip of her coffee, already missing the quietude this man had disrupted. I was hoping Robert wouldn't stoop to this. She could feel him studying her before he spoke. You're right. Learning you had come to this part of Mexico wasn't too terribly difficult, but the Yucatan Peninsula is a large place, and finding where you were in the area was tougher. I've spent quite some time checking in all the wrong places. I'm sure you have, she said with a slight smile of satisfaction. Well, you know my name. Shall we even the score? Louis approached the table with the second cup of coffee and looked at Marla questioningly. She smiled in return. 
Gracias, Louis. It's all right. It's who I thought it was. I'll be at the bar if you need anything else. Anything at all, he said pointedly, eyeing the stranger with suspicion before turning to go back to the bar. He seems very protective of you, the man said. Yes, he is, and I haven't even known him very long. But people here seem to be respectful of other people's wishes, a trait that definitely appears to be a local one. She paused. Certainly he had caught her bluntness, though he did not appear insulted. I believe you were about to tell me your name. Of course. I'm Eric Logan. I'm a private investigator outside Seattle, in Everett. He pulled a card from a pocket and placed it on the table. I did some work for Robert last year. Not a missing person, though. So that's what I am now. That wasn't exactly my intention, but I can live with it. Or I could have. Something tells me you're about to change that for me. Marla stared through the open windows and toward the waves brushing the shore. In the dark, she could see the white glow of the surf that moved in a wavy, flowing line. I guess my tides come in, so to speak. She noticed Eric was looking at her closely, but she didn't acknowledge it. Despite her chastening words, and wary as she was, she had decided not to be rude to him. You're nothing like what they described, he said finally. Sending her coffee down, she looked directly at him. You couldn't have paid me a higher compliment. I'd like to think I was never what they described. Unfortunately, I'd be fooling myself. But I have changed, and if you can tell that without ever having met me before, so much the better. She paused for a moment, and except for the sound of Louis arranging glasses at the bar, it was quiet. Not anxious to discuss the obvious and noticing his hands fidgeting, she asked, Are you nervous about something? No. Why? He looked surprised. Well, then you must be trying to quit smoking. She added another cream to her coffee. Startled, he said. Actually, I I am. I thought I was the detective around here. What makes you say that? Because you've been tapping the ashtray with your stir stick since you sat down. Eric looked down at his hand, still tapping, as she'd said, as if it might be something detached from him. He put the stir stick down. I actually have quit for three months so far. It's a leftover habit, I guess. He put his hand palm down on his leg. Marla smiled to herself, a tiny bit glad she'd made him be the one to feel a little self-conscious. As we all know, Billy Graham has made the journey he had been anticipating. (laughs) And in his honor, because he was who he was, here are some quotations from him. God never takes away something from your life without replacing it with something better. We are the Bibles the world is reading. We are the creeds the world is needing. We are the sermons the world is heeding. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict God's job to judge, and my job to love. When a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. Tears shed for self are tears of weakness, but tears shed for others are a sign of strength. And one more for now. God has given us two hands, one to receive with and the other to give with. We are not cisterns made for hoarding, We are channels made for sharing. 
Continuing in Chapter 31 of Winds of Wyoming, we start with Kate and Dimple uh, in Rollins, Wyoming, visiting the jail, or trying to get there. Kate heard the Humvee pull up beside the Jeep and Tara's saccharine voice. Need help finding your way around the big city, Dimple? A town this size must be a challenge for an old woman like you. Equally a syrupy, Dimple answered from above the map. She'd opened as wide as it would spread, blocking Kate from Tara's view. Thank you, Tara, but I believe I've figured it out. I think I've figured out something, too. Dimple did not respond. You came to town to visit Kate Nielsen, and don't pretend you didn't. I have proof right here that she's locked up in the county jail, where she belongs with all the other druggies. Oh, the joys of modern technology, she laughed a merciless laugh. This led me straight to her car, which is being searched by officers as we speak. Any guesses as to what they might be looking for? Again, Dimple was silent. I say, good riddance to bad rubbish, Tara chortled. Kate Nielsen is a menace to our community. From her vantage point, Kate could see Dimple's wrinkled fingers crumple the edge of the map before she spoke. What did Kate do to make you hate her so? The bitch was trying to steal Michael Duncan and his ranch, both of which rightfully belonged to me. Kate blinked. Where did Tara get that idea? Dimple sighed. You're a sick woman. And you're a senile old hag. Tara hit the gas and was gone. That witch, Kate sputtered to a seated position. She can't talk to you that way. She just did, Dimple chuckled. Plus, she gave me the finger. First, Kate said, I'm a thief who takes the Duncan's cash. Then I'm doing drug deals with Mike. Now, I'm trying to steal his ranch. What will I think of next? Dimple threw back her head and laughed so hard Kate thought she might lose her teeth. I'm so glad you've kept your sense of humor, Kate, even when nothing makes sense. Nothing has made sense since I came to Wyoming. Kate paused. What was it that led Tara to my car? Looked like a laptop computer to me. I know computers do amazing things, Kate said, but how could it find my car? Beats me. Kate rubbed the newly exposed flesh on her knee. You know Tara will tell everyone from here to Copperville and beyond that I'm in jail. No matter what rumors she spreads, Dimple brushed a strand of hair from Kate's eyes. God knows the truth. The Bible says men look at outward appearances, but God sees our hearts. He knows your heart, Kate. You will be vindicated. He also knows Tara's heart. Dimple gripped the map again. We may not understand what her role is in all of this, but her vile behavior will result in God-ordained consequences. Kate took the map from her. I better fold this for you before you ruin it. Shall we try to see your car again? Might as well, Kate said. We're here. Dimple made a second U-turn and drove around the block. She stopped where Tara had parked earlier, across from the impound lot. Kate's Honda sat in the middle of the fenced area, surrounded by boxes and suitcases. She could smell the warm asphalt from across the street. A man in a beige uniform extricated himself from the little car and pulled something from his pocket. Kneeling on the pavement, he used the object to open a carton. Kate blew air between her lips. Something about seeing my possessions scattered around an impound lot gives me a funny feeling. I hope it's an allegorical expression of my life, 
not prophetical. I'll ask the sheriff what's going on, Dimple said. You don't have to do that, Kate touched Dimple's arm. They're obviously searching for something, probably drugs which they won't find. Unless someone planted them in your car. Oh, you're right, Kimple groaned. There's always that possibility. Fear, like moths, began to thrash about her stomach. Dimple parked near the front of the building. I'll only be a minute. Kate watched her friend limp away, glad Dimple hadn't asked her to go inside with her. If she'd gone in, she might not have come out. She studied the two rows of small, evenly spaced windows on the side of the building. That had to be where the jail cells were located. Thank God she was on the outside. For now. She sucked in a breath. Why hadn't she put the pieces together before? Her graduation from a wheelchair to crutches today meant the sheriff was free to take her off house arrest and put her in jail. The moths became mallets that beat against her ribcage. She reached for the door handle. If she could somehow get to her car, Dimple emerged from the building, her face grim. Mike's stomach turned. Watching a second cow die was no easier than seeing the first one go down. He ignored the turmoil in his stomach and turned to the twins. But they were gone. Hearing a whimper, he looked down. They'd both sunk to the ground and were leaning on each other. Their freckles flared against their pale, wrinkled faces. He knelt before them. You ladies okay? Minnie fanned her sister with her hat. He killed that poor buffalo. Uh, That's what hunting is all about. Mike kept his voice gentle. I know, but I didn't think. What will happen to it now? Mamie sat up. We'll take it to Rollins to be butchered. Their faces contorted and they pulled each other close again. Buck walked over. When can I get a closer look at the cow? When we take in the loader and flatbed to retrieve the carcass, Mike said. The ranch can have the meat. All I want is the head and horns. Mike thought of yesterday's dead buffalo sitting at the processing plant. How about you donate it to the homeless shelter in Rollins? Great idea. Buck slapped him on the shoulder. Clint, who'd been watching the herd, turned to the group. Looks like they're settling down. You ladies ready for target practice? Mamie and Minnie glanced at each other. No, thank you. Mamie brushed dirt from the knees of her green pants. I couldn't kill one of those amazing animals. Neither could I. Mamie lifted her chin. But we can still tell our friends we went on a buffalo hunt. Mamie straightened her hat. That's right. Clint winked at Mike, and they helped the women to their feet. Kate held her breath, her heart thumping so hard she was sure the jeep was shaking. Whatever Dimple had to say, it wasn't good. But she didn't have an officer with her. Dimple opened the driver's side door but stood beside the jeep without speaking. Kate bent to see her face. Do they want me to go inside? Was this her last free moment of life, her last breath of air outside prison walls? Dimple got into the jeep. I'm sorry to scare you. She took Kate's trembling hand. This old noggin just had a couple of major jolts. What did the sheriff say? As we saw, your car is being searched a second time. The first time they found your cell phone charger and checked your phone messages, which he says confirmed suspicious email messages. Kate swallowed. She knew that would happen. 
Then drips were discovered in your cabin at the Whispering Pines, so they decided to go through your car again. Why, Kate asked, would the sheriff's department care about drips in my cabin? Dimple blew out a long breath. I meant to say drugs. But that can't be. I've been clean for more than five years. I don't know if I would recognize drugs if I saw them, Dimple said, but I didn't see anything unusual when I packed your things. However, the sheriff says his deputies found contraband in every room of the cabin. Kate moaned. It was true. She was going to spend the rest of her life behind bars. I hate to say it, Dimple said, but there's more bad news. I don't know if I can take any more, Kate clutched her chest, which felt frozen as if all her organs had stopped working, except her sweat glands. Her armpits reeked. Gerald Ramsey escaped. Kate stared at the tiny windows on the side of the building. That's impossible. While Tara chatted with customers upstairs, Ramsey smoked, switched TV channels between game shows and soap operas, and drank the two remaining beers from the six-pack. The ceiling creaked with the weight of shoppers, wondering the store above him. About to doze off, he sat up when his picture flashed across the television screen. He turned up the volume. We interrupt this program for a community service announcement. The announcer was male. Moments ago, the Carbon County Sheriff's Department issued an escaped inmate alert. He stared at his mugshot, which filled the screen. Speaking rapidly, the man listed his name in a description. Race, Caucasian, age 37, weight 162, height 5 feet 9 inches, eyes gray, hair black. Ramsey snickered. Not anymore. Secure your homes, the announcer continued. Do not pick up hitchhikers. Do not open your door to strangers. Keep your children in view at all times. Yeah, Ramsey drove his fist into the air. He was famous. He was on TV. He was feared. Tara came tripping down the stairs as the newscast ended. Before he could tell her he was a celebrity, she picked up a knife from the end table. Where did this come from? My suitcase. That's the one you gave me, remember? I thought it looked familiar. She hesitated. Why do you have it out? He heard the hint of fright in her voice. Respect was coming at him from all directions. You never know when you'll need a weapon. He fastened his gaze on hers and held it until she dropped the knife where she found it. She turned to the bathroom. I came down to check my lipstick. A few more quotes from Billy Graham. A real Christian is the one who can give his pet parrot to the town gossip. (laughs) Remember, he wants your fellowship, and he has done everything possible to make it a reality. He has forgiven your sins at the cost of his own dear son. He has given you his word and the priceless privilege of prayer and worship. Christ not only died for all, he died for each. Self-centered indulgence, pride, and a lack of shame over sin are now emblems of the American lifestyle. And one more. This is the inscription on Ruth Bell Graham's grave, which was inspired by a road sign she saw. It says, End of construction. Thank you for your patience. And this is the end of the podcast. Thank you for your patience. 
Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.